Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Manchester's indie rock and roll station Access Manchester The Access Manchester Long Player An iconic album in full With Jim Salverson Access Manchester Alright, welcome to the Excess Long Player Classic albums being talked about in full With the people who made them This is the start of season two of this podcast But pretty soon, we won't be releasing seasons We'll be releasing weekly So make sure you subscribe to this podcast Click the follow button It doesn't cost you anything, completely free And you'll get the latest episodes More in-depth discussion about some of the world's greatest albums As soon as those episodes drop But to start off season two one of my favourite albums of all time, but I'll understand if it's an album that you haven't previously heard of. More chance you have if you live in Manchester, because Liam Frost is one of the finest songwriters to come out of this city. Which seems like a big statement for someone you potentially haven't heard of, but it's not just me that thinks that, he's also garnered praise along similar lines from people like Elbow's Guy Garvey. This long player interview focuses on his debut and much-loved album Show Me How the Spectres Dance, which is a stunning and personal and heartfelt piece of work. I've known Liam for a few years, always been a big fan of what he does. Some of his recent stuff is equally brilliant, but talking to him about this album, I heard stories that I'd not heard before, and there was real insight into the creation of Spectres. You'll also hear in the middle of this interview Liam getting a phone call, which interrupts us. But what I love about it is the ring on his phone. It's a real kind of old school Baker-like phone ring, which when I joined him on the Zoom call, just completely fitted his surroundings because the decoration in his house is really retro. Very cool, but really retro. If this album is new to you, I do suggest you go and listen to Spectres. It is stunning. You can find a link to the album in the podcast description. So either hit pause now, go and listen to it and come back, or listen to the interview and then go and listen to the album afresh with a whole load of information and insight spinning around in your brain. Enjoy this, Liam Frost talking about his excess long player, Show Me How the Spectres Dance. How you doing, Liam? You okay? I'm okay, man. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right, sir. I I remember vividly this album coming out because Mm. I was working for a radio station at the time that launched around the time the album launched and you were very much involved in all the activity around the launch in Manchester and all that kind of thing. I can't believe it was so long ago, 15 years ago now. Yeah, I mean, the the bags tell the real story, don't they, I think. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's weird to think about. I mean, I guess in the context of sort of albums I released since as well, I think I'm kind of four full-length records deep and obviously working on this Fountainhead stuff now, if we're counting Tocklosh as well in between that. I've never been like the sort of quickest of writers, so it's uh, that thing of releasing an album every 18 months is kind of just never anything I've worked towards. So I, I can see the distance in terms of years. 
But, you know, when I think about some of the memories from around that time specifically, kind of in, in the lead up to my first record deal and then getting the slowdown together, leading into that first record, it's still right there. I want to go back to the beginning shortly, but first, I'm just curious as to how you feel about this record now, because I think there's certain points in your career, maybe more in recent history, where it's felt to me that like you've almost been trying to turn your back on it a little bit, kind of push it back and move forward. Now, obviously, you're very proud of it and it's part of Yeah, completely. But does it also, appropriately for the title, does it haunt you to a certain side of <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can approach this one for a couple of different directions, but I remember around the time that we did the Toklos shows and, you know, given the nature of my songs and sort of the fact that that record is so well loved specifically within the Northwest, but Manchester in particular is like a large percentage of the people who follow my music from this area. And as a consequence of kind of being around for as long as that have now, those relationships have sort of developed with people who follow my stuff. And I remember speaking to this couple who were from Ermston and yeah, I'd met them. I think Laura Jones, she's called so hi, Laura, if you're listening to this, was making cupcakes at the time named after like musical acts. So there was like a Jason Orange uh, I think they were called the Sugar Bun Sisters, you know, based on on the Roses song. Yeah, yeah. And then there was the Liam Frosting. It was pretty good, actually. It was a good, good cake. It was when I was ripped up, so I didn't get to have that many. I was I was doing weights and running <laughs> all the time. So I was just, like kind of, you know, not that many cakes. But anyway, like lovely couple. And they were just saying like I'd started the Tokolosh thing and obviously that had come out at the back of Spectres sort of doing pretty well. And then my second record and the Martha single kind of like A-listing at numerous radio stations and what have you. And I just went and did the Tokolosh thing. So like just almost stopped that that in its tracks. And it was for personal reasons, you know, like I was pretty burnt out. The experience of doing all of those things essentially on my own because I signed that record. Signed the first record deal as a solo artist. It wasn't with the Slowdown family, but we put the Slowdown family together out of like the emo scene that I was kind of, I'd been born from like all the punk rock scene. And... uh I'd done that by myself. And so kind of a lot of that kind of the stress of that period, like all, all the things that I've mentioned before about kind of, you know, the label putting pressure on me at the time because I was like overweight. And then, you know, the nature of some of the singles, like we put out Mourners first as a single, which isn't, ne- it's like a really good statement of intent, but it's not like, I remember the radio plugger at the time was also putting out Monster by the Automatic. <laughs> and he was just like kind of desperate not to put Mourners out because he wanted radio bangers like Monster by the mm. Automatic. It was just one of those things that there was quite a lot of negativity around what should have been really like mentally a kind of good time. But I mean, I was pretty young. It was just a lot of pressure. So I, I sort of, I wanted to get a gang together essentially to sort of, sh- to, to have people to bounce off, but also to kind of share the load a little bit, share the experience. So we started that. And I guess with regards to Spectres, this is a long-winded answer. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> it's it's one of those records that's like people love it so much and it's so personal. Mm. Some of the content of it, as you well know, is well documented. That you just kind of get those like shared experiences, which is what songwriting's about to me. It's about like kind of taking something that's probably difficult to talk about and then presenting it in a way that's sort of you know palatable to to a group of people. And then it's like it's like it's almost conversational. So I guess elements of the kind of pressure of being a solo musician that have had a negative impact on me and then there's the sort of the twofold thing of the attitude towards those songs of them being well loved which obviously i I find amazing but sort of reliving grief i suppose uh, which can have a real effect on your mental health and i think just that thing of just moving forward so that couple when i met them at the Toklos show were just like i really respect liam 
he always does what he wants. He always moves forward. I just don't want to get bored, you know. Mm. I might come back to it someday. I just want to let go of those songs. Like, yeah. it'd be, I mean, I still listen to loads of sort of songwriter artists and it still inspires me, but I'm just into something else at the minute. And yeah, I, I just don't think I'd be able to go and do like a Fountainhead show now and play mm. Paper Boats and it sound cool. I guess it's like an element of compartmentalization. God, that was long. I'm sorry. No, it makes perfect sense. So, and, th- and thank you very much for taking some time to go through the album with us today in, in that yeah. case as well. It's interesting you talk about the relationship that other people have with this music, because that's something that I always hear time and time again from people who are into your music. They've yeah. There is a song that you've written at some point that has a deep connection with some moment from their mm. life. Yeah, yeah. Does sure. that mean the songs, and uh, particularly because these songs are born out of your stories, they're born out of things that have happened in your life, quite big things that have happened in your life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do they still feel like your songs? No, they're not. They're not. Once you've written them, in, in the case of where like where your songs become a commodity, essentially, they stop belonging to you because you write them and then they become an audience's. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So they sort of, whenever I sing them, I think you can relive events. And that's interesting to do, but everyone else is reliving their events as part of that. So it doesn't just become mm. yours, but yeah, it's nuts. I mean, even songs that I, I don't really expect sometimes will pop out. Like this, my second record, we ain't got no money on it, but we got rain. Like there'll be songs from that, that I, I don't really like that record a lot for various reasons. We're not here. We're not here to speak about that today, but a track like orchestra of love maybe, which is like kind of poppy love song. People have walked down the aisle to it. So it's not just that thing of like, you know, such and such a person has died and mourners spoke to me or whatever you get the flip side of the coin as well and it's it's a lovely thing it's just uh yeah that that ownership of songs once you've written them is just kind of like yeah trying to look for like a less um less rubbish way of saying that you just become like a conduit for it almost. <laughs> you know what i mean i'm trying not to get too spiritual we've started a, on a little bit of a, a down note as well i guess so yeah man but i mean that it's an album full of downers <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to day one yeah yeah young liam walking into a studio guitar in his hand for the very first time to record your debut album yeah man what were the emotions like at that point that whole thing was a trip like i made the four track demo played a bit around manchester got a deal I mean, I've, I've been like playing shows since I was about 13, like locally doing like social club talent shows and that sort of stuff. But I started playing at Star and Garter at the Acoustic Anarchy night when I was 15. Acoustic Anarchy, if for those people who haven't heard of it before, is a, is a club night and record label out of which were born bands like Nine Black Alps, The Long Cut, like amazing bands from Manchester mm. at a specific period. Uh, but this was in the nightclubs kind of infancy. So I started doing that. I went to a music college in Manchester, formed my first band. We played like the Roadhouse, Night and Day, Music Box, loads of different places. Like I've been doing it since easily 2000. But by the time I finished the band I was in, I started writing the songs that made up Spectres. This is like 2004, 2005. And so 2004 to September 2005, when I first signed a record deal, that's quite a short period of time. But I guess, you know, a certain amount of stuff happened in my life at that period. And you write those songs and then... Yeah, it just comes. So when it came to, yeah, walking in the studio for the first time, it was wild. I mean, like you're 22 years old, you're being put in a situation where you're recording an album with somebody who's worked with like, you know, Coldplay, Morrissey, mm-hmm. Danton, who's amazing. We're still friends and um, still like, you know, talking about doing bits of stuff together. But it's, that's, I mean, the studio where we made that record is called Battery. So it's owned by Flood, who produced uh, like, you know, Pumpkins, loads of U2, I think. And it's it's on a sort of, compound in Wilston Green in North London, which is pretty rough, uh, still a pretty rough area. And in on that compound as well is this like little house. 
and we, we stayed in it. So it's essentially residential, like a residential studio, but far from it in reality. So there was this like horrible little house with like bullet holes in the window that we were all staying in that was just like, you know, basically on the street bar of security. Oh, the glamour. It wasn't, wasn't very secure. But what I then found out was that that house was the base of Silvertone Records, who signed The Roses. It's weird, man. Mm. Really weird experience. So there's that bit of history there. You know, you're dealing with kind of like all this money being thrown at you and doing this record for a major because it was a, it was an independent label under a major. So it was kind of, it was well-funded. And yeah, just, you know, working with a producer that you really admire, essentially with your mates, you know, who you've been playing gigs around or with for ages. It was, it was lovely, like amazing experience. Just, yeah, just wild to think about at the time. Did you know how the record was going to sound when you went in? Because as you said, you'd come from a bit of a different background musically and you'd been in these punk bands around Manchester. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Were you expecting well, I, it to come out as this singer-songwriter troubadour kind of album? I mean, I was listening to like uh, a lot of Bright Eyes at the time. I know people will will have drawn the parallels with, with Connor's writing, Death Cab for Cutie, like Fretwell, obviously, who we'll, I'm sure we'll get to talk about at some point. And for me, I wanted that record to sound a little bit scratchier and a little bit more like indie in the way that, you know, a Bright Eyes record might sound or whatever. But because of the way that the major label industry works and, and radio and that sort of stuff, it needed to sound a certain way. And I guess that just wasn't in my sort of my vision of it to talk about visions, if that's the case. But it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It just came out sounding much cleaner and more palatable for radio. But those songs have stood up, that recording stood up, so it's not, I'm not saddened by it. How much of Manchester is in the record? Because I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear that it was recorded in London because mm. because you have so, you're so connected yeah, to the sure. city and you're so connected to the Northwest. Yeah, completely. Music industry was different at the time. I think that a lot of the assumptions were that kind of nothing could be done outside of London. So there were people that I worked with up here that were kind of sacked off from the campaign by the label just because there was an attitude that they didn't think it could be done. And I was, I, I really regretted that. So mm. my mate Oaks, who did some of the web stuff. Uh, yeah, I was really sad that we didn't get to work together sort of to its, to its end. There's like an art guy up here as well who I really got on with. But there was definitely an attitude of like, not much can be done outside. And that's, I think that's gone now, especially now people are kind of recording in studios at home. But at the time, the big studio was still like a thing. As we well know, like Manchester's kind of throughout my music in terms of the talking of, you know, place names. And that's right through to, you know, Pomona from the last record. Mm the way that I sing you can hear it definitely and all those stories are from from Manchester like you know songs like try 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 and if tonight we could only sleep were literally written on the on the 93 bus from town to Carclough where I lived in Presswich it's like on the Presswich and Curzel border I suppose yeah they were like written here or they were written in that that little bedroom in the council house with my mum's and yeah it's, I think it's, it cuts through everything so I'm, and that's you know part of the the oddity of it as well those these songs that you've written in your, in your pants in this like room at your mum's house and now in this like massive expensive studio with all this <laughs> money behind it yeah i mean a lot of it came down to the fact that the record industry dependent on time ha, to, uh, on a time has a certain amount of certain number of producers a certain number of co-writers in the case of the modern industry and how singer songwriter works in that i don't really think singer songwriters exist at major labels anymore it's mm. more about everything's co-written so there's always like a handful of songwriters, just a handful of people that people uh, that labels will generally work with. And that was still definitely the case. But yeah, I mean, it worked out well because Danton's brilliant. He's a really good guy. I remember when the album came out, the review in the NME at the time compared you to David Gray, I think. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I remember reading the review and going, 
is this a different album that's being referred yeah, to yeah, here? Sure. Obviously, that is one review. But how much did the reaction to the album from reviewers and in magazines? How much notice were you taking of that stuff at the time? That that was the Mourners single. I even remember the name of the reviewer. Okay. It's that classic thing, isn't it, of like not taking in all of your best reviews, but only taking in the negative mm. ones. Uh, and I remember the the guy saying that it sounded like David Gray. Now David Gray is like a much respected songwriter as a guy that remortgaged his house to make White Ladder on his arse, essentially. He had no money. He remortgaged his house to make White Ladder and got massive songs like Please Forgive Me. Beautiful songs. I mean, I'm not a massive fan of Babylon by any stretch, but what's weird about, I guess, that period, you've got records like White Ladder and Oh by Damien Rice. And out of that was born kind of James Blunt and James Morrison. And all of that music that was massive at the time that I came out and that Fretwell was knocking around. And I think it really sort of dirtied the waters with regards to what a singer-songwriter is and how it's perceived. So artists like Fretwell and I were kind of battling against that. I mean, I I literally remember like You're Beautiful just being constantly on the radio Mm. at the time. And yeah, if if you're like a singer-songwriter, you get put into that box, I guess. So yeah, it's uh, it was a it was a weird one to deal with, but I was fortunate that kind of a lot of those reviews that ended up coming through. I mean, enemy at the time, Dan Martin was writing, you know, rest in peace, Dan. Of course, not with us anymore, but he um he was a really big fan of it and was like mentioning me in the same breath as songwriters that I really admired, and the reviews were lovely. But there was there was one or two, but I think it it was born from that just about the idea of a songwriter being a bit of a dirty word, which that which is why I think we saw stuff like bright eyes and cherry ghost where it was like a singer songwriter but it was a band name because it's right i think it's just got certain connotations attached to it i Mm. think specifically at that time and i guess now but more so at the time i'm going to ask you to pick a couple of tracks off the album in a second um they can be highlights they can be lowlights they can be be bits you just want to talk about but i just wanted (laughs) to ask you specifically about the relationship between two songs on the album this is love and is this love, is this love? which are kind of yeah. next to each other on the album thematically obviously similar but what's the relationship between those two songs i think i just thought i was being clever <laughs> at the time just by calling them i was thinking i'll have one on either side of the vinyl i was so heavily kind of oh that would, that, so that would be the break of the vinyl when okay that makes yeah sense. i think so i think that's how it ended up working out but yeah i mean is this love was written kind of in the in the weeks following my brother dying and i was kind of in this relationship at the time and it and it didn't work out for whatever reason well a very specific reason which i think is quite obvious from the song but then this is love was kind of written as as the kind of flip side of that the sort of polar opposite this is like so i've, I've just put myself back in terms of memory to when this is love was written so when I, when I signed my deal, I'd written six songs for what became Spectres. Again, not the quickest of writers. And so I was writing like while in the between period between signing and making the record. So I remember, I remember where I was when I wrote Mourners because that wasn't ready yet. There was a couple, City wasn't written, City is at Standstill, or it had just been written and hadn't been turned into like what became the City is at Standstill. Right. It was a ripoff of New York by Fretwell because uh, I'd been touring with Fretwell at the time and I wrote the City is at Standstill while I was on that tour. I'll stop. It's a good old school telephone, that. <laughs> Cold callers. I've started just like, because um, it's always something in an office. And um, yeah, I've just got like a, a variety of creepy sounds that I make to kind of just <laughs> entertain myself. Come on now. Won't be long. Persistent. Persistent. They really want that call. I'm just going to hang up one sec. All right.
Yeah, so I'm 100% leaving that in the podcast, by the way. Yeah, no, do it. Do it. It's a good ringer, isn't it? What is this? It might be important. One sec. Hello? Hey, how are you doing? Can I give you a call back? I'm just on a, on a Zoom. No worries, I'll call you back. Turns out it was actually quite important. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah, City's at Standstill. This Is Love ended up being the, the last song that I wrote, and it was while I was in the studio. Yeah, and it's, I guess it was just the flip side to that. I wanted to write something pretty sort of romantic. I think it had a big feel of like an Elliot Smith sort of tune. I was listening to a lot of Elliot's music at the time. Yeah, that was pretty much it. So pick a couple of tracks off the album for us. And like I say, they can be highlights, they can be favourites, they can be significant for another reason. It's your call. Cool. We have to talk about Mourners. So, uh, yeah, with, with Mourners, we had, I'd already, I'd already got the kind of deal in place and I was having to kind of write more songs for, for the record. And yeah, I mean, obviously the subject matter of that album is, is quite obvious and, and specifically that song. But I guess to sort of dig down into it, Arcade Fire were obviously like a really big inspiration on what became the Slowdown family. And I was I was into them. There was this song of theirs called Cold Wind that was a was a non-album single. I think it was on a TV show, Six Feet Under or one of those. Hmm. I was really intrigued by the shape of the song in terms of its like kind of structure. So instead of like a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, chorus sort of thing, it was like one song and then it became another song. And I think that was the idea with Mourners. I still like that idea quite a lot. It's kind of struck through as kind of a narrative throughout my writing. Uh, but yeah, with that one, I had this sort of definitely sonic idea of sort of how I wanted it to build into this sort of crescendo. And yeah, that's what, that's where it came from. It's definitely, that was an influence. I think even Nine Black Alps, actually, if you listen to the song Unsatisfied by them, there's a line on that that's like pretty similar to one of the final guitar lines that comes through in the bigger section of Mourners. Hmm. Was there any yeah. hesitancy from yourself in terms of, as we've said, it's a really personal album. You tackle a lot of personal stuff on it. Mourners probably more so than a lot of the other tracks on the album. Was there any hesitancy in terms of laying yourself bare and talk, and writing that no. stuff? And... No, no. I think at the time, I remember an interview with Jimmy Goodwin and Guy Garvey where, where they played that song. You know, there was a quote from What a Wonderful World in there that was the song that was played at my dad's funeral. And they were, they were talking about kind of the bravery of just using that. But for me, it was just like, I don't know. I think that thing of just, I, it just felt natural to talk about my experience. It came from a real place. And I think that's what I kind of, what I look for in all songwriting, what's real at the heart of it. It's, it's something that's become more difficult as I've continued in my career, thinking about, you know, the second record where co-writing came into place to make hits, I suppose. Quotation marks for our radio listeners. <laughs> and yeah, I guess I guess the same with Latchkey, where you're sort of you know thinking about how will this sound at radio. Mm. But I think with that record, the last record, that was a pretty good marriage of the two. Yeah. So with this one, I, just, I, I wasn't bothered. It was just kind of writing about my experiences, and it just happened that a record label liked it enough to want to put it out. I remember at the time I played these like this run of shows at night and day, and at the Water Rats in London uh, when the first EP came out, and we were like just starting to kind of get mourners into shape. I think we played it like the second out of the four gigs and then it just stuck in the set and uh david sue writes for the manchester news or did at the time said that it sounded like coldplay and it was just or that it was like such a kind of i guess like fix you was maybe a big song at that point right. which does a similar thing but people love it so it means a lot as a song pick another one off the album 
if tonight we can only sleep probably talk about this and try 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 maybe another just because of the songs i'm most proud of from that record okay. uh if tonight we can only sleep it's funny actually when we did the tim burgess listening party for this record a little while back which was a response like to it, a public clamor wasn't it that happened it was like it was, yeah, it was pretty much it's it like was everyone wanted to hear you do it which, is, yeah, which yeah, must yeah, be sure. an awesome thing to experience to see yeah it's of wild this. yeah yeah just like this little faction of people within one part of the country just going like let's have this which is mm. lovely you know yeah, like, because I've never really listened back to it that much, apart from when I've had to relearn songs. Like, so when I kind of came back to doing solo stuff after doing Sokolosh, I had to kind of relearn a couple of, like, the deeper cuts on the record. And so that was, like, maybe 2011 or something like that, 2012. And then I'd not listened to it again kind of since. And I was like, it's weird. If Tonight We Could Only Sleep, it's got, like, a subtle reggae vibe to it that I'd not picked up on. And I was a bit disappointed almost in it that, <laughs> that, it, that it wound up that way. That's one thing I think about. It's the bass line. And then the the trumpet that comes into the end of the flight. This sounds pretty reggae. It's wild. Lyrically, I'm really proud of that one. Again, this is like, it's like I'm just a theft. It's like a magpie almost. And, and it's The Cure again. So there's a song by The Cure called uh, If Only Tonight We Could Sleep. I think I just robbed right. it. Just, like, I had it <laughs> written down. Like, just changed the words around a little bit. Obviously, it sounds nothing like it. But yeah, it started from like another Elliot Smith sort of thing. So I was, I was doing this like triplet picking pattern. I think I was just trying to be like really showy. I, I've never been that amazing a guitarist, but like what I can do, I can sort of do okay. And I wanted someone to kind of show that a little bit. There's a bit, a bit of like, this songwriter from Texas who who was based over here for a while, Micah P. Hinson. And I think his song had something that had a similar picking pattern, uh, which is weird because the Micah P. Hinson record was made by the earlys. And then we wind forward a couple of years and Christian and Nikki and Richard are in Tokolosh and we're still great friends. Uh, so yeah, there was a bit of that in there, and the, the song, as I said, was written probably on the '93 bus, or at least parts of it, and it was just about kind of like an un unrequited relationship, sat in a student house in Withington, just like wondering if it had happened or not, and it doesn't. But I, I just like the way that the way that the lyrics sound on it. I think it's some of the best lyrics I've written, and it's been one of those again that's like because of the the fervent nature of some of the people that follow my music, like you know tattoos in my handwriting of those lyrics that sort of stuff and it's it's kind of just a bit of like everything that i wanted it to sound like like i wanted those sort of dreamy harmonies mm. i wanted the sort of musical kind of interplay to be in place and i like the conversational nature of how sadie came in in that middle section which obviously we can't really recreate post slowdown but it's almost it kind of like gives the other side of that sofa uh, talking about the the sofa in withington of the object of this song i suppose that lends it that idea of conversation you mentioned you kind of when you went back and listened to it, you picked up on this reggae vibe that you hadn't picked up on before. I, I know you did the um, you did the re-release fairly recently, and Hector's yeah, uh, sure. got his kind of vinyl, like a really fancy blue vinyl pressing. Were you tempted at any point to go, well, do you know what? Let's let's take another run at some of these. Let's remaster it, or let's re. Yeah. Let's, like, did, were you tempted to kind of look at these songs again with the benefit of over a decade of space? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously given how that I've largely been playing shows sort of over the last sort of 10 years where a lot of it's just been me. I've always really wanted to just like make a record where it's completely stripped back and kind of deliver, deliver the songs in that way. I guess that the last live record I put up on streaming uh, sites kind of reflects that. I guess what we were talking about before about how it came out pretty clean sounding, I'd like the opportunity to kind of make a little, a little more ramshackle and scratchy version mm -hmm. of it. Uh, it would be interesting. I've not, I've not really thought about it a lot. Again, that thing of just like kind of wanting to move forward. And I guess if I was going to make 
any sort of completely solo acoustic record, it would be a, a record of new songs, however long it would take to do that. So yeah, it would be it would be intriguing to kind of, especially with that song where it has got that that reggae feel to it. <laughs> but then similarly to a song like Try Try Try, where there, there are actually about four different versions of it that were recorded in the lead up to the to the record coming out. There's like a full band version that a lot of people that have kind of collected the the the, rare, the rarities, so to speak, or those earlier EP releases prefer. But I just think with that song in particular. I wanted like an, a, a sort of proper album closer and it, and it felt kind of more appropriate to have that as a solo number. And again, I think that, I think if tonight we could only sleep and try, try, try uh, kind of flip sides or part of the same conversation, given there were, I think, I think those two songs were written within a, a week, which is nuts to think about. Mm. I remember, I, I remember vividly working on if tonight we could only sleep and try, try, try on this, on the same night midweek, unboxing them off in that week and just being like whoa i think at that point i had like road signs and red lights paper boats she painted pictures a couple of others didn't make the record but they were like my sort of tentative steps into sort of being an acoustic singer songwriter after spending all my time just being like i'm emo and so it was like they were quite simplistic in their nature like she painted pictures i remember writing i just started going to see fretwell around town at that point and he had this song on one of his first EPs called Thank You. And it had that like sort of swinging feel that she painted pictures has got. And I was I was definitely going for that with that. But because I was sort of learning how to write those songs at that point by listening to other artists as, as we do as songwriters. And I just think my, my early adventures into doing that sort of stuff came out a little simplistic. But then I wrote Try, 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 and If Tonight We Could Only Sleep. And I was like, wow, now we're on to something a little mm. bit more serious. Yeah, and then that and that week just being like, wow, I can't believe those have come out of me. That's nuts. Liam, I really appreciate your time. It's lovely to talk to you. I'm excited about, I've had a little hint of what's coming next from you in terms of the Fountainhead yeah, sure. stuff and really excited to hear that very soon. But yeah, awesome to revisit an album that I know is, well, it's one of my favourites and I know it's a favourite of a lot of people, particularly in Manchester and the Northwest as well. So I really appreciate your time. Yeah, man. Thank you ever so much for having me. And, you know, thanks to everyone that's uh, that's followed that stuff throughout the years and hope that you like Fountainhead when I finally break out into the light of day post-COVID. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. Good that, wasn't it? Nice chat with Liam Frost about Show Me How the Spectres Dance, one of my favourite albums of all time. Like I say, if it's not an album you're massively familiar with, do go away and listen to it, because you can't fail to be bowled over by the songwriting on that album. If this is your first time listening to an Excess Long Player podcast, go back to listen to the other episodes in this series. Chats with Steve Craddock and Badly Drawn Boy and Stephen Street, the legendary producer, to name just a few. And click follow or subscribe on this show so you get the next episode as soon as it's ready. And hopefully you'll join me again for another classic album on the XS Long Player. <laughs>